The scripture reading this morning is taken from Psalm 132, a song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which you will not turn back. One of, your, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. My enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown shall shine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, we're coming near the end of our study of the Psalms of Ascents, 15 Psalms, Psalm 120 through 134, that describe the journey that the Israelite would have from their home to Mount Zion, which was on a hill in Jerusalem. They're the Psalms of Ascents because as they went up, they pictured a life with God, a life that is upward towards His presence and in the same way, we are called on the same journey that we have a life toward God. And that's what we've been looking at in these psalms. Psalm 132 this morning is not one of the more well-known psalms uh, in, in this series. Um, and yet it is crucial because it talks about the presence of God. The backdrop of Psalm 132 is, is really a couple of stories in the Old Testament. Second Samuel 7 is uh, the story of David's covenant with, with God. God made a covenant and he swore an oath to David that you will always have a son on the throne. And some of this language reflects that in Psalm 132. Then Psalm 132 also contains almost direct quotes from 2 Chronicles 6, which is the prayer of the dedication of the temple that Solomon prayed when he was commissioning the temple that he had built. So it's possible that Solomon wrote this psalm. It's also possible that later, many years later, a king named Hezekiah, who was reforming the temple, actually wrote this psalm, and then it was collected for us here. But it's a psalm about the temple. It's a psalm about the Ark of the Covenant. It's a psalm about God's presence with his people. It's where God wants to be. He wants to be with his people. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Before we dive in, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help one more time in prayer. 
Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It is no empty word. It is no vain repetition. It is living and active. So as we hear it today, as we come and study and look at it, I pray, Father, that by your spirit, you would animate our life with you. You would give us life. You would take the heart of stone from our flesh and give us a heart of flesh. We ask that you would be glorified. We ask for your help and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Lincoln is our dog. Uh, he is a vishla. I don't know if you know what a vishla is. They're beautiful, uh, brown, majestic hunting dogs. They're noble beasts. They, they're awesome dogs. And they, the vishla breed has uh, a nickname. Sometimes they're called the Velcro dog. They're called the Velcro dog because they like to always be near, preferably touching uh, their people the people in their lives. So they are like Velcro, they stick to you. And so if there was, there's hardly a moment in our, our family when he's not wanting to be touched in some kind of way, not indicating to us that he would like to be near. If there was a way that they could snuggle like inside your body, they would probably do that, right? It just wants to be that close all the time. And it's like he's, he's constantly saying to us, do you like me? But, but do you really, really like, I mean, I know that you kind of like me, like me a little bit, but like, do you love me? Do you love being near to me? Do you want to be close? And you kind of want to say to him, where did this insecurity come from? <laughs> you know, I mean, if you could speak to that dog's psyche, you might say something like, listen, I've known you since you were a pup. <laughs> I watched you from afar. I had pictures of you, like, I have always been with you. You live in my house. You eat from my hand. I've never given you any reason to doubt that I like having you around. Ever since you have been, I have been near. There's a way in which we can be insecure about our relationship with God, about his presence, about his provision for us. And it's sometimes the case that we like to make sure that he is still interested in us, that he is still caring for us, that he's still near. Do you still like us? Do you still like to be near us and around us? Or do you love us out of a sense of obligation? Is there a sense that you have to, now that you've committed yourself to us, that you have to be near? And there's a feeling that perhaps... If we look to God's face, we might find that it's turned away a little bit or that it's not tender towards us the way that we want it to be. But Psalm 132 tells us what God's desire has been, is, and always will be. God has always desired to be where his people are. God has always desired to be where his people are. Look at verse 13 with me. For the Lord has chosen Zion... He has desired it for a dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. 
And in that statement where God makes his commitment to Mount Zion, to the temple, the, the journey that we've been going on all the way to Jerusalem, to the presence of the Lord, is a picture that contains all the other pictures before it of God's holy nearness, of his dwelling place with his people. Because it's not just in whoever wrote this psalmist day, whether it's Solomon or Hezekiah, it wasn't just in his day that he realized that God desires to be with us on Zion. It's that God's always desired to be with his people. Whether it was Mount Zion, which is to us past here in the psalm, it's present. They're going to the temple. Or before that, whether it was the Holy of Holies, the the presence of God in the tabernacle, the tent of God's dwelling place. Before that, it was the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. As Israel wandered in the wilderness, God was present to them. Before that, it was the Garden of Eden, the first sanctuary, the first temple ever built where God himself placed his dwelling place with his people. That's his forever desire, Psalm 132 says. Forever I have desired it, to be near my people. So, Psalm 132 is almost like a little historical tour on the presence of God. And we're going to look at where God was, where God is, and where God will be. And, spoiler alert, it's always with us. It's always with his people. So let's look where God was. The first few verses here talk about David's vow. Look at verse 1. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. This was David's desire, to have God have a dwelling place. Now, there's a couple of different iterations of that desire, and it reveals one of the strongest themes in all of Scripture, which is, where does God live? Where is God's house? You know, the common place, Bethel, it comes up all the times in Scripture. The word just means house of God, Bethel, the house of God. And that theme is, is throughout. Where is his dwelling place? And David is saying, your, your place seems to be lost. I want you to have a place. Now, his, the first part of his vow was for the recovery of the Ark of the Covenant. Look at verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. What is the it that he is talking about. We have found it in Ephathra. He's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Ephathra was an old name for Bethlehem. The fields of Jair is a shortened way of talking about a place called Kiriath-Jerim, which is where the Ark of the Covenant resided for 20 years after it was lost. The story is, the Philistines came and invaded Israel, and the Ark of the Covenant was carried away, and it was lost to the people of God. And then even after they recovered it, it was such a sacred thing and so holy, they didn't know what to do with it, so they left it in a field, the, the fields of Kirith-Jerim, for 20 years. And so the psalmist here is saying, 
We heard about it. We heard that the presence of God was lost, and we wanted to worship it. And David says, I swear, I will bring this Ark of the Covenant back to where it belongs in Jerusalem. Why is the Ark of the Covenant important? It carried within it all the realities of God's presence. It had three things inside, all of them historical symbols of God's gracious dealings with Israel. It had the golden jar that had manna, which was the food that he provided for them in the wilderness. It had the tablets of the law, the two stone tablets that reminded Israel that God graciously had given them, given them his ten words, his ten commandments. It had Aaron's rod. The priest Aaron had a rod that budded, produced flowers. And that was in this Ark of the Covenant because it was a reminder that God was in a special way priestly with the Levites. He was there. He was present to them in a special way. And on top of the box, on top of the box of the Ark of the Covenant, I mean, we've all seen Indiana Jones, right? All right. You know what this looks like somewhat. All right. There's a box and on top of it is the mercy seat. And that's the place where the priest once a year on the Day of Atonement would come in and sprinkle the blood of the perfect sacrifice so that the sins of the people would be forgiven. And so this has always been where God's presence has. And it's always been through the blood that God has been accessed. And David makes a vow and he says, I am not going to rest until the ark of God is brought into Jerusalem until we recover the presence of God. That was the first part of what he wanted to do, but then he wanted to build a temple around this ark. He said in 2 Samuel 7, I live in a house of cedar. It's not right that I live in this wooden house and the, the Lord still dwells in a tabernacle. I would like to build a house for the name of the Lord. And he talks to Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 7, and Nathan says, go for it, the Lord's with you. But then the Lord gives Nathan a dream in the night, and he says, this is not who I want to build my place. Have I ever asked you to build me a house of cedar? And so David is not going to be the one to build the house for God. His hands were too bloody. He had fought too many battles. He brought the sword, but his son Solomon is going to bring the house, the temple. And this catches us up on this historical tour to the present-day reality to the one who was writing the psalm because in verse 8, they switch to the present tense and they say, well, let's, this has happened. Now we have the temple. Look at verse 8. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away your face from the anointed one. Now we have the ark. And the ark is now surrounded by the temple. And perhaps Solomon wrote this or later King Hezekiah. But the psalmist clearly is saying, let's go to visit this ark in the temple because this is where God lives. Bless us, he's praying. And so as we move along in the historical tour of God's presence... We have the Ark of the Covenant, which was contained in the tabernacle, the tent where God met. And then we have the temple. The temple, though, contained the tabernacle. 
and the temple even contained the Ark of the Covenant, and the temple contained even the Garden of Eden. All the temples that came before, in other words, were found in the temple. The Bible is very clear about these connections that the temple and the tabernacle were pictures of what God had already done. There's just so many details. We could preach a whole sermon on this. But when God told them to create the tabernacle, he issued seven statements, just like in Genesis chapter 1 when he creates the Garden of Eden. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let the earth, you know, all the things of, of Genesis 1. And when he made the tabernacle, he did the same thing. And God said, and God said, and God said. In Genesis 1, in the creation of the world, the Spirit of God is resting, is hovering over the waters. And we're told in the building of the tabernacle that the Spirit of God was over the artisans who made the, the temple pieces. In the middle of the Garden of Eden was a tree with many branches, the tree of life. And in the temple, the middle was a, uh, a candlestick that had many branches demonstrating the tree in the middle. The temple... It was built later, had trees and flowers etched into the gold around the sanctuary, demonstrating this is a garden. There's so many of these details, I won't go into all of them, but basically the temple contained the tabernacle, contained the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, contained the Garden of Eden. This has always been God's desire to be with his people. What about for us, we don't have a temple. We don't have the tabernacle. We don't have the Garden of Eden. We don't have these now. Even what the psalmist here in Psalm 132 is celebrating, arise, Lord, go and do what you said you're going to do. Be present with us in our worship right now. How can we be faithful to come to God's, into God's presence? This is all past for us. Where is God now? Let's look at where God is. Verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. There's an interesting turn here. In 2 Samuel 7, when David is saying, I want to build this house for your name, God then turns it on his head and he says, no, but I will build a house for your name. See, David swore, but in verse 11, the Lord swears to David. He turns it on his head. I will establish your house. I will make a house for your name. A sure oath. I'm going to establish your son, the son of your body, Solomon. I will not reject him as I did Saul, your predecessor. And a son of your body will be on the throne if they keep my covenant forever. Forever, this will be the reality. Well, continuing in our history lesson, some of the sons of David kept the covenant, and some did not. 
the temple was established. Then the temple was destroyed by Babylon. The people of God went into exile. The people of God came back and built a second temple, less glorious than this temple of Solomon, but still a place of God's presence. This second temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Romans. And there's only one portion of it left. The Wailing Wall in Jerusalem is part of the second temple. But despite the many millions of people who visit it every year and pray, that is not where God dwells. Where does He dwell? He dwells in a body. A body that walked through that second temple. And while he was there, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it back up. And when he was derided for saying that, he, the, the scriptures tell us he was talking about the temple of his body. This is Jesus Christ. One of the sons of your body will be on the throne forever. The son of David is Jesus, David's greater son, who alone kept the covenant, as we're told here in Psalm 132, if the sons keep the covenant, Jesus kept the covenant. He's the one that Paul would say, in him all the fullness of deity dwells. God himself in the flesh. The son on the throne who also came to be near to us. God has always desired to be where his people are. He is where God dwells. In Jesus Christ. In the body. But the mystery doesn't end there. Because the church is also Christ's body. Because we have been united to Christ. We have shared in a death like His. We've been raised in a resurrection like His. We are united to Christ. When God sees us, He sees His temple. He sees Christ. And so the Bible says that God dwells in Christ, and He also dwells in us. We are the temple that's being built together. The church, all those who profess by faith the name of Christ, are being built together into a structure, that the dwelling place of God. The Spirit of God hovers over this place. His, his special presence is here where we're gathered in His name, especially where the Word is preached and the sacraments are administered. This is where God dwells when we are all together in Christ. John 1 tells us about Christ. The Word, that is Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. To dwell, the word there means to pitch his tent, to tabernacle. It's the same thing. God has always desired to be where his people are, and where he is, is in Christ. That is our present reality. This is where God is. As we say, Many times in a benediction at the end of a service, Ephesians 3, may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. He dwells in your hearts. He dwells here. And we, by God's grace, have been brought into God's presence always. This is where God is. He's never left us. 
He's always been in proximity. He's never failed in His commitment to be near us. But there are times when we don't experience God's presence. When we feel that insecurity of being far away from Him. And it reminds us that this story, while beautifully whole in Jesus Christ, is not completely finished. Jesus goes to prepare a place for us, he says in the Gospels. It doesn't mean that he's not fully with us now. By his spirit, he is. But he also goes to, to prepare a place for us. That means there is a place where God will be, where there will be no insecurity about his presence. There is a final dwelling place of God. The author of Hebrews says, there remains for us a Sabbath rest. There remains for us something coming of God's presence. Where God will be. As we close out this psalm, we see the switch to the future tense in verse 14. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Notice the future picture of finality when all of these things will happen. The, the poor will be fed that will be clothed in righteousness, that the priests will all rejoice, the saints will rejoice, and there will be a horn to sprout for David, a king on a throne. The satisfaction for our hungers, the joy that we seek, the salvation will be final. You know, we were, were watching uh, <laughs> Star Wars um, I think it was last week. And I hope this doesn't make too light of the situation, but it just reminded me of it as we were watching the final episode of the final of the of the three, you know, mini series within the movies of Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker. That's the last uh, movie in the series. It's been out now for four years. So, spoiler alert: I am going to spoil a little something, but you should have watched it by now anyway. <laughs> so you got Ray who's the heroine, she's the hero, she's the Jedi, she's the, the last Jedi, so to speak. And she's fighting against the evil one, the Emperor Palpatine. Wait a second, Palpatine's he's dead. He's supposed to be dead a long time ago. But actually it turns out that, that somehow all the, the culmination of the Sith Lords have now been, appeared in this one person, and he appears to be the Emperor Palpatine. And, and so he is the great enemy and all of the power of the Sith are in him. And in the climax of the movie, uh, Rey is fighting him. She realizes she was related to him. You know, it's, it's the whole thing. Sorry, I shouldn't spoil it more than I have to. Um, and, and she's down on the ground, and he's, con he's about to destroy everything. And she prays to the other Jedi. And she says, be with me. Be with me. And then all these voices come in. And they say, we are with you. We are with you. And it's the voice of Qui-Gon Jinn. It's the voice of 
Yoda. And so all the voices of the Jedi. And so she stands up, she grabs another lightsaber, and she's like, she's, now she's fighting full on. And, and, and Palpatine says, you can't defeat me, I am all the Sith. And then in a great climax of the whole movie, she says, and I am all the Jedi. And the Jedi win. The light wins. This stuck in my mind, that, that picture of like everything, every coma. It's a great way to end the series. I mean, it's not a great movie in every sense. Don't hear me. You know, it's, it's just a great way to end the series to say all the Jedi and all the Sith are fighting together in one final battle. And it's like in the end, it's all the dwelling places of God. All of the dwelling places of God are contained in this one final place because the temple contained the tabernacle and the tabernacle contained Eden and on forward through Jesus Christ is present and then at the end, all of these things are true. All of the dwelling places of God are in one place. The final garden city contains all of the elements of God's presence and that's the picture in Revelation. If we see in the book of Revelation, you see all these pictures from Genesis, and you see all these pictures from the tabernacle and the temple, it's because this is the one place where it all ends up, where God will be, a place where there's no distinction between wondering if, what, if God is present and knowing that he is. It's fully known. It's fully experienced. Right at the end of the Scriptures, Revelation 21 I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The dwelling place of God is with man. And this, I believe, the psalmist is picturing what perfect worship would look like, even though he couldn't have known the reality of Christ and the promises of revelation. He does know that there is a place with a people and with a prince. That's how he closes out. He says, there is a place, verse 14, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And he knows there are a people, the, the priests are clothed with salvation Verse 16, and her saints will shout for joy. And he knows there will be a prince, that is, the son of David, on the throne. The horn, the sprout of David, verse 17, he's called the sprout of David, a lamp and a crown. Even though he doesn't fully know what it looks like, he knows there will be a place where the people of God are with the prince of God forever. And that God desires to be there with them. Is that what you want? Because that's what God wants. God has desired for His dwelling place, His resting place, to be with His people. Do not doubt that God wants to be near you. Do not wonder whether He is committed to you. Do not be afraid that He has abandoned you. Do you see how the whole story of God 
is the story of him in every stage, regardless of the sins of his people, regardless of how faithful they have been, regardless of whether they're in exile or they're worshiping God in the temple, he has always been committed to being near us. And so the saints of God can shout for joy. Her priest uh, will clothe the salvation and her saints will shout for joy. As we close, let me just say this. The word saints there, it's twice in the psalm. The saints will shout for joy. That's a hard word to translate. Actually, it's a noun form of the word that we talked about last week, hesed. Covenant faithfulness, steadfast love. When you see God's bountiful love, his steadfast love, it's always that word hesed. Here's the noun form of that. Meaning what? These are his loved ones. The saints are the ones who are beloved. The loved ones of God can shout for joy. That is our identity. He has desired to be on Mount Zion. He has desired to be with us. We are his loved ones. And so we can lift up our heads and know that God is near. You are his loved one. He does not want to be far away from you. Let's pray.